Blog Talk Radio. Every four years, it's an event that brings joy and spectacle all across the globe. Mundiale, La Coupe de Monde, Das Feldmeisterschaft, the World Cup. And in 2014, the World Cup was in Brazil, a nation of passion, color, and samba. But from the sublime goals to the fabulous saves, what we remember are the World Cup shocks. For the next few hours, Mike and John Gardner will break down the miraculous. To the moronic. And that is plain stupidity. Surely not again. Surely not again. Welcome to the 25 most shocking moments of the 2014 World Cup, presented by Fanatic Radio. Hello everyone, welcome to the 25 most shocking moments of the 2014 World Cup. I'm your host Mike Gardner of Fanatic Radio, and joined with me is my soccer buddy and partner in crime for this special, John Gardner. Basically, as the intro hinted to, we will be breaking down the 25 most shocking moments of the 2014 FIFA World Cup, a masterclass of skill, performance, stupidity, and even some red cards. Cards, but now we will officially begin with number 25. Honduras was a nation very pleased to be one of the 32 teams in competing in Brazil, and rightfully so. They were playing in their second consecutive World Cup. They finished third in the regional qualifying, and their first match in group play was against France, who was a disaster in South Africa and playing without its best player, Frank Ribéry. And surprisingly, the Hondurans held the French scoreless through most of the first half of their first group game. But then, the shocking moment wasn't when midfielder Wilson Palacios received a yellow card in the 28th minute, but when he was sent off with his second yellow 15 minutes later. A penalty to France. We got the second yellow card for Wilson Palacios. Well, the damage is huge. And that's before they've even taken it. So, so two yellow cards in the first half has to be one of the shocking moments of the World Cup. Because certain players just don't do that. Let alone getting sent off is one thing. Maybe in the second half due to a fatigue or something going horribly wrong. But... Getting two cards in the same, two yellows, not even a straight red, John Gardner. <laughs> Michael, how are you? Good. Wilson Palacios, 
two yellow cards in the first half. It was absolutely ridiculous. The funny thing was, and the most shocking thing was, was that he didn't even realize that he picked up his first yellow. Apparently, according to some of the press that spoke to him at the training session the day after the match, he claimed that he didn't see the card when he was stretchered off, which is ridiculous. That is the thing. Most fans don't probably don't know that. He was he was uh, ordered by the official center official to go off the field. But it's shocking that he didn't even know. It's funny that nobody told him. It's just insane. I think I think it's hilarious. It it truly shows the mismanagement of of honestly on his part. There's no. I mean, the officials they they show you the cards. You should know. You shouldn't have challenged in the box like that. <laughs> yeah, and it got worse. It's, and it got worse as France capitalized on the man advantage to win three zero. And poor Honduras was eventually eliminated from the tournament with three losses, still having yet to win a World Cup match. Number 24. History has proven that the Asian teams are slowly rising to the World Cup scene. This is straight out of the pages of some kind of football fiction fantasy. For the Asian teams, it's, they've done really well historically in the last four in the last four World Cups in the, since the turn of the 20th century, 21st century. Uh, they've made it to the second round or further. Korea and Japan historically have done very well. Even Iran, they've they've done really well. They've advanced. But this World Cup, somehow, some way, they just weren't able to. Ever since hosting the tournament in 2002, a team from Asia has made it to the knockout round. And with South Korea, Japan, Australia, and Iran carrying the torch in Brazil, it seemed like a winning combination to give the Far East a chance at World Cup glory. Goal It was the exact opposite as all four teams failed to make it out of the round of 16 and for the first time since France 98 while managing to finish rock bottom in their respected groups with a combined point total of two. John, I thought that Asian football was supposed to be on the rise. We have all these books, soccernomics, saying that Japan is going to be the next world power, yet not even any of them made it, and all four teams finished last in their group. No, it's certainly a step back. And like you said, they're, they're a promising football culture. Asia's growing. There's a lot of investment, in, especially in Japan and Korea. Technically, they're strong teams. They have all the right pieces, but for some reason they just have not been able to. They just didn't get it right this tournament. And that is a real, a really a step back for a lot of those countries. 
especially considering like how well Korea and Japan have advanced just in the last ten years. It's it's been it's been a fantastic story, but it's truly a disappointment, especially for Asia. Africa's even Africa, who 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 oh, historically have not really been technically sound, made it a lot further than Asia, which is surprising, I think. Well, the thing was shocking for me with this. Uh, obviously, not not to our good friends of Australia because they are playing in one of the toughest groups in the World Cup. The shocking thing for me was Japan and and uh, South Korea. Because those two, because you know South Korea made, and when when they hosted the tournament, you know, South Korea makes it all the way to the third place game. So this team is is one of the best in the world. And then this year, you know there were no, I feel like there were no stars for any of these teams, other than Honda and Japan. You know there was no you know Juwon on Park Ji Sung for South Korea. There was no Nakata for Japan. It seems like they're lacking big name players. Which, as we mentioned, a complete step in the wrong direction, and, and for Iran, you know, as, and we'll see that later, they you know literally, literally came to the World Cup just wanting to tie every game in advance with three points. Number twenty-three: the World Cup is a chance to see the best players on the world's biggest stage. Fans from across the globe were anxious to see players like Ronaldo, Botelli, and Wayne Rooney set the tournament alight for which they are known for. Except there were one problem. They were all horribly rubbish. Now they were. They're the best. They're the best players. But they just did not get it right. <laughs> they completely undershone, disappointed, and in some ways almost embarrassed themselves at these tournaments. Well, certain players, uh, you always, you know, if you feel like the world gives these players so much expectation going into the World Cup, you know, watching Boatelli play, he was probably one of the laziest stars because at least Cristiano Ronaldo scored. Yeah, and at least he at least he was a threat. At least he was active for for most of his group play. Guys like like Botelli and Rooney. It's it's well, Botelli. First of all, he just didn't care. That, that guy, you know, because he said he made it onto the world scene and in, in you know Euro 2012. He scored that fa- fabulous goal. But when he played against everyone else in the World Cup, it just seemed like he was lazy. And and when he didn't get the ball, you know, because he got that one yellow card against Uruguay where. He literally just kicked the dude in the back of the head because he jumped so high, clearly not going for the ball, and was just in, not even in his vicinity. But I tell you, he just didn't care. To me, he just seemed disinterested. I think the the problem was, in, some, in a lot of senses, is that these guys and these players, because they're so involved with their clubs during the season, because they're so like busy and people put so much emphasis on them. A lot of these, a lot of the big name players in the World Cup. They never really. They've never. I mean, historically, and even in the last, I've been in the last two or three World Cups. They haven't really shown. There's always been someone that's sort of left out, where you step back and you think, oh well, he could have done better, or he should have done better. Yeah, I mean, I think in the same breath, like a lot of these guys probably should have and could have done a lot better. But you know, to me, Balotelli looked disinterested. Ronaldo looked disinterested. They almost looked disinterested. Like it was almost they're almost labored to be at the World Cup. This is the World Cup. This is a, a showpiece event true honor to represent your country. And these guys just seem almost tired and 
you know, almost like just disappointed, not I want to say disappointed, but just sort of like, I guess, labored, labored at the fact that they have to play more games. And it's tough. It's it's really tough. But I mean, I think for a lot of, I think for us, I think for the public, you put a lot of pressure on them and really try and sort of over. While those stars stumbled, there were a selected few that did make a major impact. But more of that later. At number 22, with millions of people watching at home, the World Cup is the one place where football players alike can debut shocking hairstyles. This year, there was the half-comb-over, half-shaved head look, the etched-in designs of Francis Paul Pogba, Bakary Sanga's dyed blonde braids, and, of course, Argentina's Rodrigo Palacios' off-center rat tail. But none of them were more shocking when Brazil's Dani Alves and Neymar both decided to highlight their hair before their second group game against Mexico. Give me a head with hair, long, beautiful hair, shining, gleaming, screaming, flaxing, waxing. They just look stupid. They just they just look dumb. And I think it, it it just I don't know if it was similar to what Romania went through in '98 with the team blonding experience, you know, the enhancement where they they tried to mm-hmm. dye their hair blonde. But I don't know. I think that was a team. Though. Was just, just two guys. Yeah, I think it was just dumb. It was just a stupid decision on their part. But I have to say, Rodrigo Palacio had the most nasty. He's the nastiest hair guy because that's just that's just as a as a player probably as a defender. You can't mark him tight because he spins you and that you get that in your face. You just get slapped around with that nasty bead. When I first saw that, it looked so thin. It'd be like if someone took a pipe cleaner and hit you with it. He's like it was, Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't like hair. It was, it was almost like if someone just took a piece of a scotch tape and, and taped, like, you know, doll hair to it. That That was a pretty bad one. I found it interesting how... Many many of the uh, of certain players had had sort of etched in designs. You had Asamoah Gyan of Ghana with the, with his number in his head just in case he forgot, and then you had Paul Pogba with 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 whatever. And then you we, we, you, you you mentioned that you saw a couple of guys with crazy designs in their hair. Yeah, they just look stupid. <laughs> they they either forgot their numbers, wanted to wanted to show off some piece of like art. You know, if I was a sponsor, I would have etched something in there. Cristiano Ronaldo could have got some Nike stuff etched in his hair. I mean, that's dumb. Really that'd, be fan, that'd be fantastic. Just imagine Ronaldo with a Nike check. That's marketing right there. Marketing marketing can make a lot of money out of that. Number 21. In 2010, the United States made it to the knockout round for the first time in eight years, advancing out of an ordinary group in dramatic style. This year, however, Jurgen Klinsmann's squad was faced with a group of deaths and a country backing them the entire way. What is your take on the U.S. chances? Uh, oh. <laughs> You're I, an expert. I'm right. I would prepare yourselves right for winning zero out of three games. Yeah, Pre- <laughs> a really hard group. Prepa- it's, that's right. It's incredibly yeah. hard. They're a good team. This has been the worst time for them to get a draw. Mm-hmm. They, it would be better if they'd been drawn against these teams in the past when things were hopeless. They've got a really good young team, but that team is going to be humiliated. Yeah. 
Plus, Clemson made a shocking decision when he left former talisman and national hero Landon Donovan out of the squad. I mean, he – I don't know. It's, it's tough to say. Looking back in hindsight, obviously, it looks like a good decision, and he got it a lot right – got it all right in a sense. But I don't know. I still disagree with a lot of his decisions. Brad Davis should not have been in the World Cup. He wasted 20 or 45 minutes playing. He never – he could have used Landon Donovan in so many other instances. I think he was a big bust. I don't think that DeAndre Yedlin, for me, he just DeAndre Yedlin just ran really fast. He didn't contribute. He got burned a couple times defensively. He was he was too young. He he was he's too young a player to go into a World Cup game with the experience that he has. I would take it and grant it if he had had European experience. He was coming from the Seattle Sounders to a World Cup stage. The best players he probably plays in week in and week out weren't probably even in the World Cup squad for the U.S. It, that, that, it was just so shocking in the sense that some names, like Landon Donovan, who is a, a stalwart on the U.S. team, almost the face of U.S. soccer. But, I mean, well, he, but it's shocking how, how some of his decisions paid off. But... I mean, I think Clemson knew what he was doing from the start, but I don't—I didn't agree with a lot of his decisions. With all odds against him, the U.S. was surprisingly able to advance out of their group behind stars like Clint Dempsey and goalkeeper Tim Howard, as a nation of doubters suddenly was once again caught up in World Cup euphoria. <laughs> I was I was shocked. I was I was shocked that we advanced. I really didn't think we were going to advance. And I think, like I said, it's 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 funny looking back in hindsight. He got he got it all right. Clinton did what he had to do, and it worked. And sometimes sometimes you need a little you need a little bit of luck. And I think you know the U.S. team rode on a wave of luck and 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 good fortune. And I think that that certainly helped and is really important in the end of the day. Well, I think it was shocking just how much Klinsman was right. Cause, and also it was shocking to show how wrong the American media is. Because this guy, like you were, you were saying earlier, this guy clearly knew what he was doing from the start. But us as as fans and, and, and soccer watchers, we see him as a complete moron. You know, he has no idea what he's doing. He's way in over his head. And what's shocking was, uh, team, it was like this team of misfits, of, of guys that... You know, the toughest opponents they've played is in the CONCACAF Champions League. And yet, you got, you know, guy, guys like like uh, like Kyle Beckerman and Graham Zuzzi, Matt Beasler, the a mix of MLS guys mixed with Tim Howard and Jeff Cameron. Guys, and some of them that have barely made, you know, over 10 caps is going into the round of 16. For the, I think it was shocking it was the second time in a row knowing that it's such a shot in the foot for U.S. soccer that it, this is like, like moving mountains in 2014. No, definitely. I, I think, well, it's funny. There's a couple of funny stats kind of considering that it, when the U.S. played Germany, the entire back line of Germany had 400 caps between them, which is an absolutely absurd number. Um, so, I mean, it shows the experience. And I think like for the U.S., I think they kind of they kind of played it that sort of underdog misfit role, you know, we're, we're going to go in and see just how, how, how far we can go. And 
they certainly they got they put all the pieces together and obviously a lot of their a lot of the players that really made a difference were the players that are that I consider to have had a, a proper career playing in Europe. Clint Dempsey, who scored two goals, he is he built his career in Europe. Jermaine Jones plays had played in Europe. You know, very rarely I think did a lot of the American based players, predominantly American based players that had had that experience and had played over and in, in, had played just in America, they didn't really contribute. I, in fact, think Michael Bradley had a worse World Cup because he left Europe. The MLS, I don't think, prepared him for the rigors that were to come in the World Cup. The standards were just too high, and I think it was really funny as well. When you mentioned Kyle Beckerman, Okay, so Beckerman's playing against Cristiano Ronaldo, and I can only imagine the conversation. He's like, hey, Ronaldo, he's like, you play with Real Madrid. I play with Real Salt Lake. We both play for Real team. Sure, that was a funny conversation. I can only imagine. Can you, can you even imagine that? Uh, that's, that? That's a shock in itself, knowing that MLS guys are, are, are D'ing up. You got, like, yeah, Matt Beasler hugging uh, in, in the Ghana game. You know, he's going up against Asamoah Gion, one of Africa's best players in the World Cup. And then... You had in the in the Belgium game, you, know, you got guys like like Fellaini and uh, and Ben Boyton, guys that and you know Vincent Company is trying is shrugging off like Chris Wondolowski. He's, he's it's laughable. You love you love the uh, the uh, the U.S. clubs against you know the best and brightest of Europe. Definitely. <laughs> Number 20, Algeria has always been a side that has proven to be difficult to opponents and many of the football giants, but ironically caught up in the drama that is the World Cup. In 1982, they were the scapegoat of a max fixation between West Germany and Austria, and in 2010, they ran into an American patriotic buzzsaw when Lennon Donovan scored an extra-time goal to help the U.S. and England advance out of their group in South Africa. But this year, after an impressive 4-2 win over South Korea, and a 1-1 draw against Russia in group play, the Algerians finally popped its knockout stage share. It's official! Algeria through to the last 16! Russia deflated. In the end, the Desert Foxes possess too much cunning for their opponents. Despite falling to Germany in the second round, the shocking moment wasn't just that the Desert Foxes made it that far for the first time, but that head coach Vahid Halahazic quit a week later. Yeah, he literally just walked off the job. It was funny because he had previously qualified Ivory Coast for the World Cup. He was in charge of the Ivory Coast. Qualified them for the World Cup. They fired him. The Federation got rid of him. He went and... And worked for Algeria and ended up taking them to the round of 16. And the president of Algeria pleaded and begged him to stay. And he just taken him to the round of 16 and just quit. He left. I think he joined Trapson Sport, Turkey Club. But, yeah, he's done everything right over there and he just quit. Well, that's just shocking. You don't – it's like – yeah, it's like, you know, you make make the the playoffs and then you decide that, you know – you make you make history, and you decide, yeah, it's, it's not for me anymore. That's just shocking. One, just how Algeria made it past their group. 
and and then then for a coach to not sort of enjoy making history and just bailing on the team. That's that's sort of how he has it. That's his sort of style. He's very he's a very gruff guy. Not not one to not a warm and fuzzy kind of character. He was definitely he was a physical player and a very like very rough and tumble kind of player. And he's just the same as a manager. How did Algeria even make it out of this group? It was a game against South Korea. They, you know, in the first game, I think they. Well, actually, to be fair to Algeria, they had a fair, they had a pretty fair World Cup. They, for me, I think what was really interesting. His approach was was different than a lot of other managers in the tournament. All twenty three of their players played for twenty three different teams, so he certainly built a very strong continuity with those players coming together. You know, there wasn't there were he didn't favor a certain club or a certain group of players over another. I think for a lot of these players it was an opportunity to really sort of showcase them them onto, you know, a bigger stage and really help them either earn some club contracts or improve and enhance club contracts and they played really well. They they had a good they should have probably you know, they scored against Belgium, they played really well against Belgium, they killed Korea, they crushed South Korea. And then they beat Russia or they drew against Russia, excuse me. So I think for Algeria they played really well. They they definitely had a good tournament. Yep, the, the past two World Cups have been they're not bad. Like so you'd expect, you know, Algeria easily lose like easily lose like five zero. This team puts up like fights and can easily attack. You know, we've seen that they've been able to score against you know some of the best. In 2010, they they held England scoreless and almost beat us, almost tied us. And then this World Cup, they almost beat Belgium, who we the United States lost to. I know it's 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 really crazy to think. Sometimes those teams just get it wrong. Number nineteen, most football fans and pundits worldwide see the countries representing CONCACAF as foreign lands and places to book your next destination vacation. I think for a lot of the CONCACAF teams, it was a World Cup. I think when they came in, they were just like, yeah, let's just see how well we can do. It's certainly, the odds were certainly stacked heavily against them, and somehow, some way, they found a way to do it, and I think that's a shock in itself. With Honduras struggling and Mexican head coach Miguel Herrera banning extracurricular activities for his, te- or his team, it all seemed one model for our friends in the Western Hemisphere. However, thanks to some sublime goalkeeping... <laughs> The shot saved again, boy, are they building a statue for him back in Mexico City or what? Oh, and another near-miraculous save from Howard, who lost that first shot and then was on his hands and knees to save the second. And with a little help south of the border... Record three teams from the region advanced to the second round for the first time ever. They they got it right. The Concacaf was one of those stories in this World Cup that somehow, some way, they got it right. When the odds, like I said, were stacked against them, Mexico somehow, some way, got through their group, narrowly lost to the Netherlands. The U.S. who surprised everybody. Everybody thought the U.S. was going to get 
just absolutely annihilated in their group. They came through, and Costa Rica somehow, some way, just I don't know. For them, they got the they got it right. They got the um, they got their country got behind them. They somehow found found the, uh, the secret formula, and they were kicking and firing on all cylinders and played really well. I think. Well, I think the shock for me was uh, was Mexico, a team. This is a team that barely got into the World Cup. You had to had to beat New Zealand to qual even qualify because they were you know, a few minutes away from not even making it to the World Cup, and then they just balled out and you know played Brazil to a zero zero game where Guillermo Ochoa was flying all over the the goal just to keep his team at a draw, and to Mexico in a must win game against Croatia, they ended up pulling it together and advancing because Mexico, it seemed like in pressure situations, they they had to perform. In a game against New Zealand, they ended up beating them like 5-1 or whatever in the game against Croatia, the final group stage of the World Cup. They ended up stepping up and making it to the round of 16. And then for the U.S., as we mentioned before, just a shock that we actually got out of our group, despite what everyone else had to say. Yeah, I think that was the, that was certainly the case. But I think from Mexico, what I think Herrera did a really good job of was that he combined a lot of the older players with the youth and really helped them mix and gel very well together. I think that was the biggest difference between a lot of the CONCACAF teams. The continuity, I think, that the managers were able to achieve with Costa Rica. Similar sort of thing. A lot of young, fresh faces came in. They sort of played in that underdog role where they had nothing to lose. They honestly had nothing to lose in their, all their games, and they played with no fear. And they were able to go really far. Similar to the U.S., I think, you know, they uh, winner-take-all mentality, and they just they went out and they played their hardest and did what they had to do to try to succeed. But you got to give them a lot of credit. And it was evidence that the world's game was indeed growing. And for one team, it was about to get even sweeter. But more of that to come. <laughs> Number 18, every World Cup, a new face or an unknown star emerges from the biggest stage. It's Phil Michael Owen. He scored a wonderful goal. It's a nothing beyond this 18-year-old. Everyone off the bench. And what a moment for the teenager. And in Brazil, one Colombian took the tournament by storm. And Hamid Rodriguez! He can score! A shining, glittering star. Two weeks ago, just a precocious talent. Now, a global hit. 23-year-old James Rodriguez not only shocked the world by helping his team reach the quarterfinals for the first time ever, but his six goals earned him the Golden Boot Award for the tournament's top goal scorer. Yeah, James... (laughs) Hamas Rodriguez played really well. He was he was another another perfect example of someone that just came in with no expectations. And I think one commentator I read an article actually that says it best. He played like he was ten years old in, in the street, you know, just with no fear, you know, no no worries. Just just went out there and 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 just tried to tried to have fun. He played extremely well. Some of his goals, all his goals were class. He had some class finishes, and he was a player that I think for a lot of people never really he's he's flown under the radar. He was at Porto for very he was at Porto for a long time. You know, had had a very successful career with Porto. Has just was just recently signed with Monaco, 
And I think for a lot of people, people I think for a lot of people they felt that when Columbia lost Radamel Falcao, that there was nobody that could step in the, in place and replace him. I thought Hamish Rodriguez was absolutely excellent in this tournament. He was he was a very bright, shining, glittering young star like John Champion's dead. And I think for me, he's certainly going to be someone to to keep your eye on in the future. Well, that's what's so shocking. In fact, this 23-year-old guy, kid, heck, he's our age, was able to be so composed. Knowing that they were without their best player in Falcone, he had no problem you know, taking his team on his back, which, which is something you'd see from like a 27-year-old or like a 30-year-old, a guy with many World Cups. You know, back from the – they played like the old Columbias, you know, the team from the early 90s with – with Valderrama, they they just looked like they had they they looked like the team out there that was having sort of the quote unquote the most fun because especially in their group games they were able just to to rip apart every team that stood in their way and then every time they scored you know the entire team was dancing the corner flag so obviously you know they're having a good time exactly I think they came with they they came with just no no uh, expectations and I think they had a lot of people. We're considering them a dark horse, and and rightfully so. They have they had a, a special team. They had a good group of players. They were similar to that '94 team where they had a great mix of, of old and, um, and 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 youthful players. And I think they came with with just you know no no uh, previous. I don't know. I think the '94 team had a lot of pressure, and I think for them they they came with with no real pressure and no uh, no fear, and they showed it certainly. All right, we have reached halftime here with our 25 most shocking moments of the 2014 World Cup. We will take a commercial break, but when we come back, we will bring you starting off with number 17 as we as John and Miles Gardner will return for the shocking moments of 2014 World Cup presented by Fanatic Radio. Radio. And whoever made the decision to give you this big fancy studio is an idiot. The reason you wake up on game day and put on your team's colors. Fanatic Radio on Love Talk Radio. You don't talk about so check it out. Uh first got it when he was six, didn't know any tricks. Matter of fact, first time he got on it, he slipped. Landed on his hip and busted his lip. For a week he had to talk with a list like this. Now we can end the story right here But shorty didn't quit, it was something in the air uh, yeah. He said it was something so appealing He couldn't fight the feeling, something about it He knew he couldn't doubt it, couldn't understand it Branded, since the first kick flip, he landed uh, Labeled a misfit, a bandit cocoon, cocoon, cocoon. His neighbors couldn't stand it So he was banished to the park Started in the morning, one stopped after dark Yeah, when they said it's getting late in here So I'm sorry young man, there's no skating here so we kick, push, kick, push, kick, push, kick, push, coast. And away he rolled, just the rebels of the world with no place to go. And so we kick, push, kick, push, kick, push, kick, push, coast. So come and skate with me, just a rebel looking for a place to be. So let's kick and push. What up, Lupe? Shout down, check. My style is very Tennessee, mixed with some Terry Kennedy. People barely remember 
with me from back in the day. I done got some contacts and threw the glasses away. The time it took me to get cool was a massive delay. But check. Just boring growing up in Memphis Trying to become a pro but keep showing up apprentice Mama probably would have done anything to prevent this Cause every single time I break a board it gets expensive Luckily my aunt working as a nurse So every time I needed something she just reached up in a purse And plus she'd always give me speeches on the first If I'm staying in a the house then I need to get some work I tell her I was there on vacation She say you need to be doing something other than skating Why don't you go kick it with your uncle in the basement I'ma let her know that you coming honey he's waiting Ask me an old school checker flag playing chess looking through some old school record ass He knew I didn't really want to post here Open up the window and told me that the coast clear And now I coast clear Take a deep breath feeling like the post here Homie this is recess it's just each test life's ever given me A plus graded by a teacher in a sweet dress Yes, I'm literally Larnell Lewis with her Kicking a snare, kick flipping the air The kid's sick, did them jeans, put a rip in a pair Just so the space ain't restricted in here Breathe again Think it's obvious that they need my soul My cousins have the dough like Raimi Fosso I said, auntie, this is a safe career She said, Drake, I told you there was no skating here So I kick, push, kick, push, kick, push, kick Coast. Fast as the whales replace, I gotta find another hobby just to fill the space. And so I kick, kick, push, kick, push, kick, push, kick, push, coast. Peep the way I roam, just a rebel, looking for a place to go. And so I kick, and push, and coast. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Before he knew he had a crew that won no punk and they spit fire shirts and SB dunks. They would push till they couldn't skate no more. Office building lobbies wasn't safe no more. And it wasn't like they wasn't getting chased no more. Just the freedom was better than breathing, they said. And escape route they used to escape out. When things got crazy, they needed to break out. They had to any place with stairs, any good rhymes, the world was theirs. Uh. And they four wheels would take them there Until the cops came and said There's no skating here And so we kick, push, kick, push, kick, push, kick, push, coast And the way they roll Just rebels without a cause with no place to go And so they kick, push, kick, push, kick, push, kick, push, coast So come roll with me, just a rebel Looking for a place to be So let's kick, and push, Even with the way they're playing, we could go undefeated. The reason you wake up on game day and put on your team's colors. Fanatic Radio on Lock Talk Radio. Back here on the 25 most shocking moments of this past 2014 FIFA World Cup in Brazil. Mike and John Gardner of Fanatic Radio bringing you the shocking moments of 25 through 18. And now we'll roll ahead with number 17.
Greece was a team fortunate to be playing in the World Cup. With their defensive and methodical style of play, they knew it would take a little bit of something extra to advance to the knockout round. And amazingly, they did, thanks to the Ivory Coast's Giovanni Cio, awarding the Greeks a penalty in a must-win game in their final game of group play. takes the ball, it's a penalty! A penalty in the 91st minute! Giorgio Savaras, the pirate ship, might well be setting sail for the round of 16. Oh, and for a nation that scored two goals during group play and had never qualified for a knockout round, suddenly felt ready to grab the tournament by the horns because their round of 16 game was against Minos Costa Rica. And even the gods were on their side as the Greeks went up a man advantage when Oscar Duarte was sent off in the 66th minute. Surely they would have punched their ticket to the quarterfinal. Apparently not. Despite a late Greek equalizer, both teams remained deadlocked through 120 minutes, and Greece eventually lost on penalty. He scores! The great adventure continues! I think, I think for Greece, the way, just their whole, I don't even know, the persona of the tournament, the way that they went about it, it was just ridiculous. I, I think they were gifted an absolute, absolute gift by Ivory Coast. I can't believe that that guy is in the box, first off, which is an absolute <laughs> had no reason and no need to foul him. And then secondly, how do you not take advantage of a man advantage? They literally played with for a man up for at least like an hour of the game, and they could not score. That's just poor. Well, the shocking thing for Greece is when, when you know, 20 years from now, when we look back at this World Cup and look at the teams that made it to the round of 16, we'll see Greece and be like, ah, European team. A very, a very, I mean, it must be a good side. You're, you're all European teams are very good in the World Cup. They always perform well. But when you look at Greece and how they got there, you sort of have to scratch your head and be like, wait, why did this team get to the round of 16? <laughs> they just, they just, I mean, they played the worst brand of soccer. It was, it was an absolute shock. They scored one they scored one goal in their entire group stage game. They only scored one goal in the entire tournament. They were they were one of those teams that just lived on an absolute prayer. It was ridiculous. I think it was absolutely ridiculous. Well, the it's, it's shocking thing is they scored three goals the entire World Cup, which many, which many teams that lost in group play scored three goals. And their two goals were... Where one was a penalty that got them to the next round, the other was during the, the other was an equalizer, and then the third was a must a must do or die equalizer just to even force extra time against Costa Rica. It's like the Greeks didn't even care, and they looked so disorganized because they were playing from behind. It's like I think the Greeks would have been content if every game ended zero zero. Oh, definitely. They would have made sure they would have gone through. They could have. They could have potentially have gotten to them. <laughs> if it would be Costa Rica, they would have played the Netherlands and probably would have like grinded them to a draw. They could have got to. They could have got to the semifinals. <laughs> they could have got to the semifinals of the World Cup because Costa Rica was able to, to be there with the Netherlands, grind them to a draw. They could. They could have been in the World Cup semifinals with a rubbish record. <laughs> Number 16, 
Every four years for the World Cup, the host nation takes up the gauntlet and goes out of its way to make sensational improvements to its infrastructure. And we were amazed to see the renovations and improvements to historical landmarks like the Maracanã Stadium in Rio. But unfortunately, this is Brazil filled with economic turmoil and frequent workers' strikes that brought constant scrutiny, and in some cases Chilean protesters, onto the host nation. Yeah, they're... Uh... Their infrastructure is awful. Apparently, a couple of the stadiums. I have one colleague actually that went down there, and for the for the uh, stadium in Sao Paulo, apparently they're supposed to have a roof on it. Never, never finished it in time. <laughs> Just didn't finish it. It flooded. Apparently, uh, some delegates from the U.S. Soccer Federation never made it to the Germany U.S. game because the roads were so bad. They were flooded so badly in Manaus. It's just ridiculous. Like, you, 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 they, they've known about this for five years. They should have easily have gotten it together. But when Brazil released its original list of venues, the world was given a shock as big as the Amazon rainforest. Manaus is a city of nearly two million, right in the middle of the Amazon rainforest. Tomorrow's game will be the third of only four scheduled in Manaus's new $300 million World Cup stadium. The facility and the city have been targets for critics who say Brazil should be spending money on things other than a World Cup extravaganza. The Brazilian press says it'll cost 250000 a month just for upkeep once the World Cup is over. Is it money well spent? This is a bigger ripoff than Peter's Sounds of the Rainforest CD. <laughs> That's right, Manaus, a host city in the heart of the rainforest along the Amazon River, was an official venue and the site of only four games through the 64 matches played in the World Cup. I'm more concerned, I, was, I would say, of anything about the venues than I'm about the teams we'll, we'll draw. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you got till it's gone to be paradise, put up a parking lot. I think there was a lot of questions as to why they put a stadium in the Amazon first off. It took people, like, days to get supplies there. It was an absolute hassle to build. It just didn't make sense. And you can only imagine they were thinking about it, like, well, let's put in there something in the rainforest. It'll be awesome. It'll be really cultural. No, it was just a complete... It was more of a hassle than I think they anticipated. And I think you just, just go for something simple. Put another stadium in Rio. Put another stadium in Sao Paulo. Put something in a, in a respectable location that people and visitors can get to. Apparently, it was incredibly difficult. Like, you couldn't, you couldn't drive there. <laughs> you couldn't get there by road. You had to fly in. It was just way too much of a hassle. The pitch was awful. It was put together. You could easily tell they, like, put it together at the last minute. It's well, it seems like, like a lot school. of it. You, know, you can <laughs> always tell the kids that, that did their project the last minute. It just looked awful. Teacher, if I was a teacher, that would easily be a 60. 60 or 50. It's an automatic F. I think the most shocking thing for me was that it was so remote from everywhere else because it seemed like 90% of the tournament was played along the Atlantic Ocean, which is, you know, what Brazil is known for. It's a, it, Putting a, a stadium in Manaus... It's almost like that. It's almost like FIFA went for that accidental stereotype, where 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 Texas is, is cowboys and ranches. When you go to Texas, it is, but sometimes it isn't. 
someone was probably you know someone's probably like you know Dave is probably like ah I know it's like you're saying let's put a stadium in the rainforest this is exactly what Brazil is and I don't think people realized just how difficult it was it was such a pain in the neck because apparently every team that won a game in Manaus was so drained from the humidity and the weather that they did not win their next game. You know, we saw it with the United States. Josie Altidore, 20 minutes in, is has to end his World Cup because he had a level two hamstring pull. In a U.S. Ghana game, we had, I think, all three of our subs were injury related. It just was an absolute mess. It just it, it defeated the whole purpose. It was it was so far out of the way. It's such an inconvenience for everybody. It just did not – it made the tournament no fun. It was just like, oh, wow, we have to play in the now. Oh, that's going to be a real trek. Really bonehead move on my part. Bonehead move on Steve's part. Because you knew, but Brazil's – the stadiums on the stadiums are fine. It's, it's, it's like they go over and beyond to try to make it like the perfect tournament. You know, because the only, the only, sta- I mean, the only stadium in South Africa, I remember, is Soccer City, which to this day is, is still there. I will not remember this Manaus Stadium. I'll just remember it as being, you know, 20 years down the road, it's going to collapse because, you know, FIFA is failing to pay for it when they got – and then when people in Manaus are living on planks and flooding. It was just just, just an awful – horrible. Like, and, the, and even the conditions itself, you know, like, I feel like every USA game was played in the rain. Yeah, it just didn't. It wasn't fitting. It wasn't a very good. Uh, yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't very good. Number 15, history has shown that when things don't go to plan, the public cries conspiracy and there is always someone to blame. The referee. And that is plain stupidity. Has the referee got a grip of this game? It was the 12th of June and the whole world had gathered around their television sets to watch the opening match of the World Cup between Croatia and host nation Brazil. I think it's ridiculous. He he made like Actually, I don't even think his decision was that bad. It wasn't that bad of a decision. Honestly, like, it was such a tough... I don't know. I don't think it it was completely, like, blown out of proportion. There was no reason he should have been demoted to fourth official. But before before that, were you you excited to watch the opening match of the World Cup? Oh, I was absolutely ecstatic. I couldn't wait. It's like like Christmas morning on steroids. I think, like, it's the best feeling in the world because you know it's starting and you know everything's going to be where it is great. And a dramatic finish was on the cards as both teams were fighting for the valuable three points. But then, in the 71st minute, with the score tied at one, came a shocking moment that would alter the rest of the World Cup. Brent, with his back to goal, goes down penalty!
Thoughts on the call? I think it wasn't that it, it was blown completely out of proportion. I don't I don't think for me it was it was a it, it wasn't a worse it wasn't the worst cause. See, I think in a sense like I've seen him given. I don't think it was enough to get him demoted to fourth official. Certainly not. It wasn't it wasn't that bad. Well, I think what's what's shocking about the event is that it took Eleva. It was it was the very first game of the World Cup, and it seemed like. Most of the referees doing games from there on out were very cautious because we saw a lot of refs sort of make no. We saw more after the opening match. We saw a lot of no calls as compared to refs dishing out a lot of, of fouls and yellow cards and red cards. You know, case in point, when the United States played Ghana, you know, Clint Dempsey gets kicked in the nose and. You know, it's just a, it's like a slap on the wrist for Ghana. Yeah, it's, I mean, it wasn't. I don't know. I, I, I think in, in a lot of ways, like, it just wasn't. It wasn't worth it. I don't think. It, it just. I think it was blown completely out of proportion. And it was honestly, I think, because of the magnitude of the game. If it would have just been a regular group stage game, there's no way they would have made it that big a deal. For Japanese ref Yuchi Nishimura, his late-game decision eventually helped the Brazilians get a 3-1 victory, and the loss would come back to haunt the Croatians. And Nishimura was demoted to fourth official duties for the rest of the tournament. Number 14 in the FIFA World Cup. People always find ways to use their head. Some for good. Van Persie with an early run. He's onside this time. It's 1-1. What a good header it is. And run from Robin Van Persie. And some for bad. Yeah. No, you can't excuse that. Zidane's career ends in disgrace. But no head was under more scrutiny than Portugal's Pepe. In their first group game against Germany, down 2-0, and just before halftime, the Portuguese defender and German striker Thomas Müller demonstrated great A play acting, justifying the phrase two heads are better than one. The referee had taken a look at it and decided that there was no free kick. But Pepe is recorded not for the first time in his career. I think it was I think it was an incredibly dumb decision on his part. It was not even like it wasn't anything worth like getting involved in. He's just gone over and just had a had an absolute like, I don't even know how to explain it. It was just incredibly stupid. Well, we've seen worse fouls. I think what was shocking was the fact that, it, it, and of course, you look at it in hindsight now, but how big that was affecting Portugal. Because you know, your, t- your team's town zero, 2-0. Your emotions get the best of you. And they got, you know, Thomas Muller flopping. But I think it was stupid of him because he was right in front of the ref. A lot of these red cards with stupid fouls were right in front of the ref. And it's almost like the players not see the ref. It's almost like he wasn't even there. But it cost him because the next game, you know, Portugal ties, thus forcing, you know, a do-or-die situation down the road. Had Pepe been playing, they might have even beat the United States because one small action really sort of blows everything into perspective. And it, it ultimately kind of cost Portugal the, you know, the chance of advancing. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what some of these guys think. They just do not make the smart decision. This is dumb, and it's really stupid. It really cost his team, honestly. Defensively, they they weren't they weren't in in good shape with Adam. I think and it was just a 
And it got worse for Pepe as he was sent off. And meanwhile, his pal Thomas Müller went on to score a hat trick in that game in the Germans' 4-0 victory. Use your head. Nigeria's Super Eagles entered the World Cup coming off the heels of an African Cup of Nations title and full of hope. Having made complete fools of themselves in South Africa 2010 by not winning a single game, they surprised everyone this year by making it to the second round. And despite losing to France in the knockout stage... Oh, got the touch on it! And this time Nigeria have capitulated! Paul Pogba! France hit the front! What happened after for the Nigerians was truly shocking. I think it's a funny situation. So they've done everything right. They've qualified for the knockout stages. And soon enough after this, the team has a complete row, decides not to train over bonuses, which is a complete joke. And they end up losing to France. They've literally just refused to train because of a wage bonus. And I was working with them, and for them... I think it's hilarious because that's a typical of an African team. It's truly dysfunctional. Not, not at all in coordination with what's going on. Our old friend, Nigerian President Goodluck Jonathan, took to the liberty to fire everyone on their technical staff after the team refused to train for the match against France in which they lost. And as a result, FIFA placed the federation under suspension due to violating laws of government intervention. John, we've seen crazy, stranger things done, but... But making it to the knockout stage and then firing everyone. Have you ever seen that before? I think, I mean, I think it's hilarious. Just, it's, it's almost like a comedy. And you think about just his approach. The president just, I, I don't know, I bet him. And he was really funny because, like, when I was when I was speaking to him, I was like, well, this is a president of, president of one of the most corrupt countries in the world. <laughs> and he just, has a, he, he just has a hand in everything. And it's it's so funny, I think. Absolutely hilarious. Well, I think it's it's one thing if you refuse to train because your team's doing bad, like poorly. But to refuse to train in what is ultimately one of the biggest matches for your country's history, and you know, a France team, as we saw from most of the first, second, you know, knockout rounds matches, a lot of teams are very vulnerable. And Nigeria, you played them zero zero for like almost ninety minutes, and they just refused to train. They said, no, we're not going to do it. You know, we're going to. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna, you know, go go to the beach. We're gonna, we're gonna do nothing, and we're not, we're not gonna do it. Yeah, it's almost, it's almost like you know, fifth fifth grade kids that are, are like not even fifth grade kids, like elementary school kids that are just like, like you know, I don't get, you know, you're not, you're like, you're, you're not, you don't finish your peas, you know, you're not getting ice cream. It's like, no, I'm not gonna do it. I, I won't do it. Number 12, the World Cup isn't just a battle of nations, but of the broadcasters. And ESPN has always been a credible source when it comes to extensive football analysis. U.S.-Mexico? Oh, you started to think crazy? What, the semifinals? That could be. It could, it could very well be. But it's supposed to start playing that. It's going to happen. Yes. Look, look at, things can happen. Look at this. Costa Rica is playing Greece in the 16th. You didn't think that was going to happen, did you? Nobody thought that was going to happen. Greece didn't think they would. Greece is playing Costa Rica in the 16th. 
And as an official rights holder for the World Cup, the worldwide leader in sports made it a conscious effort not to stumble towards the finish line in the network's final tournament. Oh, I am no spring chicken, it's true. I have to pop my teeth into juice. And my old knees have started to knock. I've just got too many miles on the clock. But the shock wasn't thrusting non-English-speaking former players into the camera spotlight or the extensive use of pointless statistics. But when it came down to its biggest match to broadcast, it was a no-brainer ESPN would choose to commentate the World Cup final. John Champion is a respected colleague. He is probably one of the best commentators in this, in, in probably modern era. He is an absolute professional. He's very... You know, he, he knows what he's doing. He's respected. Very, he's a great commentator. Very colorful with his with his vocabulary. He and Derek Ray, I think, were probably the best commentators in the world. But Robson also had a fantastic, fantastic World Cup. They they did a great job overall. And when Germany and Argentina took the field for its biggest sporting event on the planet, we were in for a shock of our own. Let's get the preview for the men who will call the match. Ian Dark and Steve McManaman. Ian. Thank you very much indeed, Mike. Well, we arrived here with about 11,000 security men outside. I think, I think it was an absolute travesty to have those two on. I, I, I like Ian Dark. I don't like Steve McManaman. Steve McManaman is unprofessional. He's obnoxious. He's incredibly annoying. He just does not believe like half the time he's just talking about what what would should what could should have. He's just not he's not professional at all. Not very good. I think it was a shock because it's clearly politics and television. Because John Champion and Stuart Robson have had fantastic calls as we've seen, and every then every game they've done, every every game they've touched seems to turn to gold. And it's the World Cup final. It's like you know ESPN was very ESPN was very almost selfish during their final run through the um the World Cup because it almost seemed like you know it's our last tournament and you know we have nothing to lose so if you know, if if we if we can't make the if you know, if we are getting criticized making the perfect World Cup no one can make the perfect World Cup some of their production and decisions they made were just so off the wall and so bad you know they had they had they had that show last call which it almost it almost seemed like when some execs at ESPN saw that they were playing in Brazil, you know, immediately it's the the crappy cartoons, the constant oh way ah uh, after every commercial break, and then like uh, like a, a you know a uh, an on the border style patio furniture set, which is very funny when you think about it because so basically it's Disney's putting their their spin on the st- like we said the stereotypes of the country. What is I can only imagine now what Fox is going to do when their first two World Cups are Russia and Qatar. Oh, I, I'm just I don't even want to think about it. They're probably going to do something really stupid. It was just completely. ESPN just does not. I don't know. They try to force feed it down the American throats who don't follow the art or just try to control people by our displays and stuff like that. It's completely stupid. Well, another thing was so shocking was they tried too hard to because you know, obviously a lot of American fans were going to watch it. They tried too hard at times because exactly. I'm watching exactly. when I'm watching ESPN and then watching Univision. Soccer is a very simple game. 
And much like the game is very simple, the broadcast should be very simple. There should be two guys, know what they're talking about, maybe some halftime analysis, a few stats here and there, a couple of little anecdotes to make us all laugh. But, you know, the touch screens and, and the constant whizzing of stats throughout the game and, and having a, a certain team paired up with a former player, some that can speak barely any English, you know, poor Gilberto from Brazil. You know, he's trying, he's, he sits there with his with, you know, hands folded and a smile on his face, a cheeky little smile the entire time. And, you know, you, you see Mike Trico, like, dishing him questions. And he's probably, you know he's just, he's just sweating bullets thinking, oh, no, what does he say? What is he going to say next? He's like he's like more worried about making sure he pronounces every word correctly than actually giving commentary. They try way too hard. They just overdo it beyond some. It's it's completely ridiculous about how above and beyond they go to try and really <laughs> sort of emphasize and ethnicize the the studio. It's dumb. It's really really stupid. Yeah, and sadly, you know, from media standpoint, that's kind of what ESPN is going to be known for. Is was that exactly. World Cup final because you you leave you you know arguably because I think they did that in 2010 too. I don't think they let Martin Tyler do the game, the Spain Netherlands game. I think Ian Dark did that game as well. I think you're right. It might it might be something like that. H- hence hence why Martin Tyler wasn't even at this World Cup for for ESPN. And then you you know John Champion. It's amazing that they got him in the first place, and then to just to say it's almost, it's almost like yeah, you know you're, you're the best you know you're the best player on the team, but but little Jimmy his dad's the coach, so little Jimmy's gonna start. Little Jimmy's gonna be the star. It was embarrassing. That's that's, that's exactly what it seemed like. Exactly what it seemed like. And while most of the 64 matches were superb to watch, featuring exquisite voices from overseas, ESPN still managed to cut off the World Cup final trophy presentation by sending it back to the studio so its goofy American pundits had a laugh about nothing. Number 11. Ghana has always been the cream of the crop when it comes to African football teams. Yeah, Ghana completely... Completely got it wrong. It's funny about the African teams, which are, which are just you just know something's gonna happen. They're like a dysfunctional family. Like you go visit, you know some drama is gonna happen. You know something's gonna happen. And it's funny because people are like, "Hey, wants to that an African team is gonna win the World Cup," which is ridiculous. But if you were, but if you were to put money on on an African team in the World Cup, Ghana definitely has to be one of your top picks, right? No, for sure. They had they'd done so well. And in 2014, despite losing to the United States on the last-minute John Brooks goal, the Black Stars managed to put it together and salvage a point against mighty Germany. All they needed to do in their next game was win against Portugal in their final group game, and they would enhance their chances to advance to the knockout stages. That is, if they could keep it together. Similar to their other African counterparts in Brazil, the Ghanaians refused to train unless the Federation gave the players their World Cup bonuses, $3 million shipped on a plane, no problem. 
But what was even more shocking could not be measured in nickels and dimes. Ghana produced a sterling second half this late a draw with Germany. But since then, internal dissent has become public. Montabe and Boateng have today been dismissed from the squad for disciplinary reasons. That's right. Both Prince Boateng and Suleiman Tari were sent home after altercations with head coach James Appiah and a FIFA representative the day before their decisive match with Portugal. I think for a lot of respect, they were incredibly unprofessional in that sense. You're in a World Cup final. You cannot do what they did to try. You do not do that. There's no, I mean, I don't know. I just don't have that kind of dissent when you're in a World Cup final. It's kind of, it's kind of incredibly, incredibly unprofessional. And at the same time, it's just, again, it's just ridiculous how they, how they really want to get that money in there. Apparently, John Champion said when he flew into the country, they made him declare that he wasn't taking $25,000 into the country. How they got $3 million in is Unbelievable. Well, it's, it's shocking one that they did that, that they managed to f- fly you know millions and millions of dollars. I think the second thing that was shocking was Ghana was a team that could have and should have advanced out of that group. You know, they were looking to become make history, becoming one of those teams that lost their first game. You know, take one on the chin, played very well against Germany, almost beat Germany, and yet in a, in a, in a must-win game against Portugal. You send two of your best players packing. You know, we saw that last tournament with Nicholas Anelka, and that's just because, you know, he called, you know, Raymond Dominic a bad word. But this one, it's like, you, know, you send Boateng and Soli Montari at home because of fighting. Fight, for fighting with your coach is, is one thing, but I think it was Montari was sent home because of altercations of FIFA representatives. FIFA representatives are like the help for. People that help you, you know, get from venue to venue, show you to train, help you deal with the media. And so that, so it's a blessing that these people work with these teams. And to have a player just get in a shouting match with them, it's almost like a slap in the face. And, and the fact that they did this hours before their, uh, a must-win game against Portugal was truly shocking. <laughs> it is. It's like fighting with, like, it's like an ape. Like, someone is here to just help you, and he just... Completely imagine that. Like the guy just like signs up. He's like, yeah, we're for Ghana's team. He's like all fired up and just stands up getting swung at. Well, it's like yeah, it's like it's like you know you go to the hospital for a broken leg and then and then he starts just taking swings at the nurse. It's like why? It's like I don't, I don't know. You just you, you fix my leg. I don't know. I'm gonna fight you for it. And it proved to be a disaster as Cristiano Ronaldo's goal in the 80th minute handed Ghana a 2-1 defeat and knocked the former quarterfinalist out of the World Cup. And we'll be right back with the 25 most shocking moments of the 2014 FIFA World Cup. And when we return, it'll be our top 10 most shocking moments. It's Fnatic Radio. It's as good as it gets. It's the reason you wake up on game day and put on your team's colors. Fanatic Radio on Log Talk Radio. Well, some of the crowd are on the pitch. Well, some of the crowd are on the pitch. They think it's all over, but it is now. 
most shocking moments of the 2014 World Cup in Brazil presented by Fanatic Radio reminding you you can watch Fanatic listen to watch Fanatic Radio's YouTube channel listen to Fanatic Radio 4 to 5 Eastern on Blog Talk Radio and check out this special on the blogtalkradio.com slash fanatic radio iTunes and bflow360.com Mike Gardner and John Gardner breaking down the top 25 most shocks that happened in Brazil, and we will roll ahead with our top 10, starting number 10. As we've seen, several African nations have been having a shocking World Cup. Fantastic. Nigeria had fired everyone, Algeria's coach had quit, and Ghana had sent two of its best players packing just hours before a World Cup final, World Cup uh, biggest game of their campaign. But none of these teams had a more shocking moment than Cameroon. And everything going wrong. Their shocking moment wasn't just Alex Song's red card for hitting a player. The referee has the red card out, and Alex Song has been dismissed. Or that two of his teammates hit each other during the same match. Now, well, infighting yeah. as well. Lukanjo and Asu Okoto and Webo 
very smartly intervening. Suricotto in words with Mukanjo. And then head to head. No, their, sh- their shocking moment came days later after their 4-1 loss to Brazil, in which was shaping up to be a total nightmare. Cameroon officials are to investigate claims from a German magazine that seven of its players were involved in match-fixing at the World Cup finals. The allegations have been made in Der Spiegel by a convicted Singaporean match-fixer, Raj Peramal, who managed to correctly predict that Cameroon would lose 4-0 to Croatia and have a player sent off. I mean, I don't think they... I wouldn't consider that they were involved in match because They just had awful World Cups. First off, I like Song getting a straight red for something completely stupid. And just the infighting between the, the teams. It's, just, it's absolutely ridiculous. But I don't think it's, I don't think it's match because I, I think Cameroon's... Cameroon in the last four World Cups have... Well, excuse me, the last two World Cups have just been completely unprepared. They, they haven't come out... You know, like, you, you expect that the, the new German coach, Volker Fink, you would have at least, you, you, you were supposed to bring discipline to the squad. I just don't think Cameroon would be a complete overhaul of this team. They really do. I, I think they certainly need to step back and really look in the direction of the Haitian story. But I don't think that's what's the issue. Well, it is ironic that, you know, uh, they, end, they ended up getting it right. Because it's very, very hard to predict. Because, you know, we, we you know, so people, you know, pull many cards to get the lottery, but to predict 4-1, which is a very rare soccer score, and then to also predict that a guy was sent off is, is, is interesting, but FIFA's still investigating that. But the shocking thing for Cameroon, I think, is cle- clearly we're a team that did not care. As soon as they got there, their very first game, you know, they hung in with Mexico, I think, for about 70 minutes, and then they lost. They gave up. They let Mexico win it's funny, the first game was pouring rain, and then they had certain qualities to what happened, which really make it shocking. You mentioned the German coach. It seemed like, you know, after the, every bad result, there there are many times where he was sort of just standing there, you know, in, underneath the, the cover with his arms crossed, just with this, with, with this blank look on his face, like he had no idea or he was just losing grips of his team. Yeah, I mean, to me, it just never, it never seemed like they had it together. Well, it's funny, even before the World Cup started, they were just aboard their plane. They were a day and a half late to the World Cup, to like when they were supposed to actually be there because of bonus round. They, their tournament was, was, was over before it even started. It was completely ridiculous. It's just un, unprofessional. And we, we saw we saw this with France last year, but that was sort of you know on on the field issues. This this had so many off field issues that bubbled onto the on field. Because France, you know, Nicholas Nelka was frustrated with the performance of the team, so he got sent home for you know explicit language towards a coach, which is bad. It's like you know like cussing out your dad. But uh, Cameroon, they like you said, they they were a day late, so they had problems even before they got there. And then it just, you know, cascaded onto their campaign in which, you know, you got a guy, Alex Song's red card is so inexcusable because the ball was, you know, not within 10 yards from him. And it, it almost, at first, he just ran into the guy. You'd think he was a simple push. The fact that he, like, flogged him down like some, you know, middle-aged knight fighting or some, like, mixed martial arts or karate kid 
is is insane. And the fact that two of the guys headbutted each other, it, it's almost it, it's even worse than like elementary school playground fighting. That's something that's something you see like a six year old do like hit someone like that. And discipline. Yeah. There was no discipline. That's the thing. No discipline. And of course, FIFA is still under investigation, but for Cameroon, it is clearly the case of innocence until proven guilty. Hey, Suarez? England manager Roy Hodgson had the three Lions optimistic and full of hope in Brazil. We'll hope for the best, but it'll be like... uh what was his name? Tom Hanks there uh, with his box of chocolates. We'll, we'll take all his gum. <laughs> we'll open the box and we'll take what we get and we'll, we'll try and digest it. Despite drawing one of the toughest groups in the tournament, England brought a youthful squad ready to prove themselves on the big stage. However, what happened to England and Brazil, no one, not even Glenn Hoddle's crystal balls, could predict. Balotelli to win Italy! That's what he could do! It had to be him! Towards Suarez, who puts Uruguay ahead! Wouldn't you just know it? He's back with a goal! By letting England football's public enemies number one and two score against them, the three Lions failed to advance out of their group for the first time in over 50 years. For the last two or three days, all we've talked about is how disappointed we are and how sad we are. But I've got to say that um, I don't think that any fair-minded person would suggest that the team did not show the right spirit, did not show the right commitment, and that we gave at any time any impression that we had nothing to play for. Yeah, I mean, I'm completely shocked. You think they had it right. They brought a they were you know, excited, I think, about being there. A lot of people, typical England, everybody thought, you know, this is going to be the year. But I think this year, you know, they had a, they took a different approach. They brought, they had a good mix of old and young, and they certainly looked like they were going to be a promising side. But I mean, I don't know. I think it's really fun having the players that really knocked them out, players that sort of like the kick in the gonads, the kick in the gonads was volatile. And two players that never, that were never really greeted and. and, and Sort of revered in English football, they were completely. Uh, <laughs> it was just sort of comical that they were the ones knocking on out, basically. Well, it's shocking that they, they didn't advance out of their group. I think it's also shocking that they finished last. You know, even even Italy finished higher than them because England had shined, had like little sparks of brightness because you got you had you had Daniel Sturridge's goal, you had Wayne Rooney's goal, but then yeah, the England England defense just was not as organized as it was in the past. Also, a lot of the guys on their team I had never heard of. So needless to say, they had a lot of old guys. Of course, they had – it seems like in every World Cup they have, you know, decisions that, that are fantastic. You know, obviously Steven Gerrard captaining the three Lions, doing a great job. But then you also have decisions kind of, that kind of scratch your head. And in this World Cup, you know, they had, they had rarely any experienced guys, Rooney and Gerrard. You know, no no one else that I recognize, hardly anyone from the 2010 team. You know, Frank Lampard was on the bench most of the time. So they tried to, to rely a lot on Sturridge and, and Raheem Sterling, who's, you know, a teenager, playing in the World Cup. And then Danny Welbeck. And then, you know, 
Yeah, you know, bringing Ramsey off the bench, and then uh, you know Ross Barkley coming in the game. Uh, guys, uh, most most people from, from from around the world, unless you don't follow unless you don't follow football, you have no idea who they are. But yeah, you know, this team it seemed like you know is kind of the opposite. Most some teams brought very experienced squads and paid the price. Some teams brought very useful squads and did very well. England brought youthful squad and still didn't do anything. And you know who's to blame then? You know because a lot of the games they played. They were games that could have easily won. So it's not like they had a bad World Cup. They just, you know, other teams did better. Yeah, I mean, it, I think defensively they, that, was, that was probably their weakest link. Honestly, I would have, I would have been objected to bringing John Terry. You know, despite all his offensive issues, he brings a bit of leadership that I think they really missed. Jack Yoko did not – he didn't bring – you know, he didn't have that sort of guile that he needed defensively. He made all the mistakes. He was the, he was the main reason why they had so many mistakes. I was, uh, I don't know, I can't, you know, I'd be really actually interested to see if Taylor's opinion on it, <laughs> see what he would have to say. If you're the F.A., is where Hodgson stay or go? Stay. Now, I think they're going to give him a chance to sort of, give, they're going to give him at least one more chance to sort of regenerate, get, get a, sort of get his players through the cycle. It's only fair, really. Well, it's a good, it's a good England doing, team. It's not a bad England team. They didn't lose like nine zero. It'd be one thing if you know if they got blown out of the water. They're a very good team with a lot with a lot of opportunity. Costa Rica is a tiny nation of roughly four million people and equivalent to the size of Denmark. So naturally, our number eight shock when they saw who they'd be playing up against in Brazil 2014. Costa Rica must have thought that all hope was lost. Group B was an absolute just monumentous task for them. You looked at, I'm sure they got the draw. They were just like, yeah, we're going to make an early fight home. There's no way they're getting out of the group. You look at it, you know, England, Italy, and Uruguay, all teams that are just quality, class, and culture, there's just no way. Absolutely no way they're getting out of the group. But amazingly, Los Ticos managed to shock the world by winning their group in convincing fashion and punching its ticket to the round of 16. And it even didn't it even stop there as they defeated our good friends Greece to advance to the quarterfinals. He scores! The great adventure continues! I think I think their their run is an absolute fairy tale. It's it's funny though. It's it's funny because I think a lot of people weren't expecting them to just come out of the woodworks like that. And uh, I I think they shocked themselves in a way of how far they got. They just kept believing, you know. They kept they kept winning games like, hey, you know, well, we can do this. <laughs> we can do this, guys. I think what's was shocking was shocking for for this for Costa Rica. As Greg said, it's a great story. I think what's, what's so shocking about it is this team uh, was kind of like the United States in 2002. You know, a lot of people looked at this squad thinking, you know, Costa Rica, this little little country, you know, not a lot of talent. You know, maybe maybe we'll surprise a few people, maybe do well. Who knows? Maybe they'll win a game. Maybe we'll even go out and beat them. But I think what was so shocking is that they won their first game. Had had Costa Rica faced an Italy or an England their first game, 
you know, we're looking at a different World Cup for them. The fact that they got a win against a Suarez-less Uruguay was the only reason why. Because because they were able to win their first game, you know, psychologically, that, that takes so much of a toll on teams positively, knowing, hey, we got to win, you know, let's play every game like it's a bonus. Let's try to, you know, make it to the World Cup final. And the fact that they did that, the fact that they won their first game, and I feel like no one took them seriously. And then when they're down 1-0, like, oh, we better start trying. Of course, it's too late because, you know, they kept winning. I mean, sometimes you get it right. I think, you know, they had a different attitude and they had a better attitude, I think, going towards that game. They could have deflated, but, I mean, they turned it around and they and they played really well throughout the entire tournament. And I think after each game, they sort of threw in confidence that, hey, we can compete, we can do really well. Unfortunately, they're packing in the back and hope the force penalties mentality came up short as Costa Rica eventually fell to the Netherlands, ending one of the most shocking storylines of the 2014 World Cup. Number seven. It served as a controversial hot topic in South Africa 2010. It's so Was it FIFA dot one? After England's Frank Lampard's goal was disallowed in a quarterfinal match against Germany four years ago, public outcry reached an all-time high about what FIFA and Sepp Blatter were going to do about it. For the first time ever, goal line technology was introduced at the World Cup, and within the first few days, it was put to the test in the France-Honduras game. This is Kabai, that could be dangerous, Benzema, oh, how did that stay up, or did Benzema can begin the celebration, the goal line technology will tell us that cross the line, and France in total command. And amazingly, the cameras and the foam spray used by the officials actually worked without any controversy. I mean, I think for me, the goal-line technology, I was very against it from the start, but it proved it proved effective, and I think it really helped out in a lot of ways. And the foam spray, the foam spray, they should have probably brought that in earlier. It's it's worked. I mean, I think it worked. It certainly it prevented a lot of you know, encroachment. That's you know, it, it's really bad for the game. But yeah, the goal-line technology is fantastic. I'm glad we got to see it put into use. It was. It was very surprising that it took not that it took this long amount you know of of wanting it, but uh, the foam spray and and yeah the fact that it it wasn't used a lot you know, Benzema's goal was one thing, and you know, there are certain events where it could have been used but you know it didn't it wasn't used a lot it was nice just sort of having it there and the foam spray you know that, that stuff that stuff got put to work and it was, it was hilarious you know seeing the officials from. From far off lands, all you have their own effect of using shaving cream on the field. Yeah, I think I think it was uh, it was almost comical. I think in a way, a lot of people uh, were were sort of you know just discounting it, but I thought I thought it worked really well. And I think it was funny how a lot of players used to like they would like wipe it away and weren't sure how to how to react to this. <laughs> Brazilian star Neymar did everything he could to carry his team on his back, besides scoring goals and constantly falling over in pain. He made sure his team wouldn't lose because this was Brazil, who had their own creative, skillful style of play that caught the world's eye every time they took the field. But after staring defeat in the face and advancing past Chile on penalty kicks in the first round of the knockout stage, Brazil did the one thing that 
every vulnerable team facing elimination and the host country of the giant target on its back would do. Take me out! In the quarterfinal game against Columbia, both teams combined for 54 fouls and four bookings, making it the dirtiest match in the tournament. The referee's trying to calm things down. And that is plain stupidity! And despite a few goals scored... Now it's Luis... There was one foul that would be so shocking it would send the entire nation of Brazil to cheers. Neymar's down as well, yeah. The initial challenge first when he played on. It's a poor challenge as well, wasn't it, by Zuniga. How many challenges has he made like that today? They just got caught in the back. Real clumsy challenge. The right knee right into the small of his back. I think it was just, he got absolutely clattered. It wasn't a bad foul. I mean, it was like a, it was a, a hard foul, but it certainly looked more than it. And I think it, it looked less than I think what it came out of. Well, it, it, it was a rough game to begin with. And I think it's sad that Brazil sort of resulted to it because all throughout the tournament, they looked like a team that was destined to lose on the big stage. It almost seemed like they weren't ready to host the World Cup as, as tournament hosts. You know, the first game against Croatia, they gave up an own goal within the first like five minutes. They tied Mexico. They were lucky to face Cameroon because Cameroon was just a total disaster. But then against Chile, it seemed like and in Colombia, two South South American sides, they weren't afraid to to uh, to go down and defeat. They they were afraid to, and and some sometimes they played so scared that they were going to lose that the only way to do it was to you know you know, beat the snot out of the team. They were the dirtiest team in the tournament. They had 14 bookings, and it was just and in this this game, you know, you'd see you know. Columbia couldn't win because, you know, they're getting fouled so many times. And once again, back to the refs, the referee let a lot of it go. I mean, I think in a lot of senses, like, they, when, they, they put way too much pressure on themselves as a home country, which is unnecessary. It really just, you know, it really took away from a lot of what we see Brazilians. I think this Brazilian team, I don't think, has the, any, any real stars. Neymar was a star, I think, but I just don't think there was anybody else. That could really, you know, change the game and make a difference. I said it before the World Cup even started. There was, if they went down to a good team, they were going to struggle. And we saw against Germany, who absolutely picked them apart and embarrassed them. And of course, the Neymar foul was shocking because, you know, you never want to see your star player get hurt. Because you, know, if you, you know, every, that's every country's worst nightmare. But. Uh, you know, Neymar, you know, Neymar gets kneed in the back, and people, you know, you see him flopping around because you've seen him so many – he's like the little boy that cried wolf. You, know, you, see, you see him do it so many times, you think, oh, nothing's wrong with him. And then, you know, then they got him off on the stretcher. I thought, okay, maybe a little something's wrong with him. He'll bounce back the next game. But apparently it, it was really bad. And uh, as a result – He was, like, paralyzed. It, <laughs> he could have been yeah. paralyzed. Yeah, as a result, Neymar fractured a vertebrae and was ruled out of the rest of the tournament with a semifinal game looming. But, of course – more of that later. Number five. Leo Messi was already an international sensation before the 2014 World Cup. And with his sublime goals and fancy footwork, he carried the hopes and dreams of Argentina to a World Cup final.
Thoughts on Messi? I don't think Messi, for me, had as good a World Cup as... Him, him as a player, though. Oh, Messi's fantastic. He's a fantastic player. However, a Mario Götze extra time goal wasn't as shocking that Messi had come so far in helping Argentina win another World Cup for his country. But before the Germans received their medals after the trophy and the trophy after the match, Messi was presented with the golden ball for the best player in the tournament. I don't think I don't think Messi deserves the golden ball. He really didn't. I don't think for me he was, he had a had a, a great tournament. He he played he played well, but not well enough to win the golden ball. Thomas Muller had a much better tournament. He scored he scored more goals than Messi. He had much more of an involvement. It was an incredible. Uh, yeah, Messi kicked brought Argentina kicking and screaming in the World Cup final. But I don't think maybe he was as as good an entire tournament. Well, to win the Golden Ball, you're the best player of the tournament. You're the MVP. It shows on one side, you know, he single-handedly carried Argentina, kicking and screaming into the World Cup final. And some of his goals were, were, were sublime. And then he did also create many assists. At the same time, though, this is also very political. Seth Blatter is probably sitting in his office saying, well, you know, Brazil didn't make it, Colombia didn't make it, and we must have South America win something because Europe is running riot with, with winning all these awards. You know, you got Neuer winning the you know the the Golden Gloves. Paul Pogba won the Best Young Player, and it's like well, we have to have South America win something, or they're never going to like us again. So it was almost like a constellation prize, and I don't think Messi really even wanted it. You know, looking at looking at him after the tournament, after they lost to Germany, he looked very very upset with himself. And apparently during the World Cup Finals, there were reports that he had thrown up midway through the first half. So this poor guy is playing, you know, with low, you know, with with, with low metabolism, and 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 he almost seemed inexistent, especially when the knockout stage started. He just was was in it was was not there. You know, he wasn't yeah, the guy he, he just, he just, creating scoring goals. No, exactly. He just didn't. He didn't look to me like he he just. Uh, Jerry Lineker actually said it the best on BBC. He just didn't look like he was involved enough in the game. He just sort of just looked not disinterested, but he just didn't seem like he really could make a difference. And I think in the end of the day, it comes down. to it's almost like it's almost like you could just like, oh well Messi Messi got into the World Cup final, let's just give him a golden ball. It's sort of like yeah, he's had a great season but he didn't really have that good of a season. He had sort of a an up and down season turmoil with the injury and stuff like that. But yeah, I, I just don't think he deserves the golden ball. At number four, reigning world champions Spain were ready to dazzle the world again with their authentic, unselfish display of the beautiful game. And with their opening match against Holland, Spain and its 17 returning champion squad players felt like a second consecutive title was out there for the taking. Still a chance for Ian Robin! It's five! It's a landslide! 
Hold on. What? This is a rout. This may well prove to be a seminal day for Spanish football. Losing 5-1 to the Dutch wasn't the best way to start their campaign, but surely a result against Chile could fix that. And it is over. Spain are out of the World Cup. The champions knocked out Chile advance with this win. I think it's absolutely unbelievable because I think they had so much going for them this tournament and so many people thought they could repeat. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. It's shocking that they, they didn't just lose. They got humiliated by both teams. You know, they're lucky they had poor little Australia. You know, by that time, Australia had lost two games. Spain had lost two games. And this is just a matter of what team was leaving with the most black eyes. Spain... Yeah, the fact that we mentioned the teams of the youth, teams of experience, Spain tried to just just keep what they were doing. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. The fact that they had lost two games was was was, was very was very shocking. Yeah, because it's we'll, we'll probably never see something like that again, will we? No, definitely. I I think it truly was an end of the, an end of an era. And then I think just the way they went when they went about it. But I think a lot of people also need to understand as well that they had a lot of those players had just come off of an emotional high. Real Madrid winning the Champions League. It's very difficult to be on that high and try to come back down and then revamp for a World Cup. But even then, like, it just seemed like teams – I think, you know, I'll, I'll give Mon a shout-out here. Mon actually said that the team finally figured them out. They finally got it right. People finally figured out how to attack. If you put enough pressure on them and, and can't, don't let them play, certainly paid a lot of uh, – it was a shocking humiliation for the defending champions who made the fastest exit out of the tournament for a trophy holder since 1950, losing all but one game, striking up the true debate of what went wrong. I'll leave you with the thought that four years on, revenge is a dish best served cold. Number three. Germany has always produced world-class football players that perform on the biggest stage. Names like Beckenbauer, Klinsmann, and Balak. But the one player who shocked everyone in, in World Cup Brazil was Mirsov Klose, who managed to make history by surpassing Brazilian legend Ronaldo for the most goals all time in the tournament with 16. It's not that Klose isn't a world-class player. The shocking thing is, most people really don't know who he is. It is true. He's, he's almost like, he's, he's had such a storied career internationally. I think because he's had such a great uh, career internationally, people just don't pay attention to him. He, he's a good player. He's fantastic when he was a third round. Fantastic. He's been prolific with Latvia. I mean, I think it's it's just sort of like, People just don't recognize it. Because I think because they're not so used to, we're so flooded with such, you know, stars like Neymar and Messi. Everybody, everybody knows about them. Neymar Cook is a great player. Fantastic. He obviously is a good player. It's funny that he's mentioned, you know, among names of like Ronaldo and Pele and Maradona of guys that have scored goals <laughs> in the World Cup. And you got Messi close to it, you know, a guy who can barely finish a front flip now because he's so old. 
Yeah, exactly. I think that's the funniest part about it is like he's he is like among those great names, and it's just people are gonna be like, "Who's Mary's mom close with?" the goal poacher. I think I think as well is because like he, he all his goals are poachers, like poachers goals. He's absolutely he's absolutely clinical in the six yard box. He'll finish anything in the six yard box, and that's why he's such a good player. Closest goal forever put him at the pinnacle of football history. That is until another German comes along and breaks his record. But more of that to come. On the greatest stage of all, villains can become heroes and heroes can turn to villains. And no man made that more apparent in Brazil than Uruguay's Luis Suarez. But Suarez is a player? I love Suarez as a player. He's fantastic. I, I love Suarez as a player. One of my favorite players. Absolutely fantastic player. Such a cunning runner. It's a strong finisher. He's good. He's good. Having missed his country's uh, opening match due to recovering from knee surgery, Luis Suarez thrust himself back into the spotlight, single-handedly eliminating England. Towards Suarez! Who puts Uruguay ahead? Wouldn't you just know it? He's back with a goal! Oh, Suarez is in behind here! Luis Suarez has done it for Uruguay! With three points, Uruguay then faced Italy in their next game to determine who would go to the knockout stages. And with the match heading towards a pretty boring 0-0 draw, Suarez decided to bite off a little more than he could do. Oh, and a, a flash inside the penalty area involving Chiellini. It's also left his Uruguayan opponent, Suarez. Clutching his face. What's Chiellini claiming here? It looks to me, dare I say it, that he's had a little bite at Chiellini. Surely not again. Surely not again. Why did I have to go and do a stupid thing like that? Because, yeah, it felt like we were through, though. But I could have ruined it. I'm such a twat. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it was a... I don't know. I feel I feel almost disheartened to, to agree with them, but it was a pretty it was a pretty low blow. I I don't think that was not it wasn't necessary for him to do that. I just I just don't I don't think for me it was something that he needed to necessarily do. Well, he was no I think it was nowhere near the ball, and he was on the opposite side of where the attack was because he was in the penalty area, and the ball was way on the other side of the corner flag. The shocking thing for me though. It's not that he bit. It's not that he bit Chiellini because you know obviously history has shown that he is you know a fiend and has bitten players in the past. There's two shocking things other than the fact that he bit someone. One is the fact that FIFA actually kicked him out of the World Cup. You don't see that nowadays because it's surprising that it was days after that he was kicked out because originally the ref never saw it. You know, and even when Zidane was sent off in the 2006 World Cup final. A fourth official saw him head butt Maserati. No one saw Luis Suarez do this. So if it wasn't for you know the moral compass of today's society, he could have easily gotten away with it and could have easily played you know for the, for the rest of the World Cup. The fact that no one saw it and then FIFA had to use video evidence to determine that he was kicked out of the World Cup was truly shocking. And the second thing is, you know, despite all that zero zero and you know in like the 80th minute, why hadn't Italy scored? You know. The shocking thing isn't even the bite. It's the fact that the stupid Italian coach takes Boatelli out. 
because he didn't want him to get another yellow. You're taking your best player out of the game, and as soon as Boatelli got subbed out in the first half, Italy was you know a sitting duck and deserved to lose this, lose this game any way possible. It was their own fault they lost this game, and their own fault that Uruguay was attacking that this happened. No, definitely. And I think going back to your first statement, it really is a shame because it's unfair in the sense that FIFA's not allowed to use video evidence to overturn calls. It's, it's part of the laws of the game. It's what makes soccer so subjective and, and why I think a lot of people enjoy that sort of drama. When you start bringing video replays into games, it completely ruins the sport. And, and I'm not defending the, the bite itself. I'm defending the fact that, people, that FIFA went above the referee's heads and decision to ban him from a World Cup. And I think that's incredibly, incredibly uh, invaluable for the official in this sense. It's embarrassing for them, for the official. You, you've basically taken his, his um, view and his decision and said, oh, yeah, we're not going to do that. Then why have a referee to begin with? If, if you're considering video evidence to make decisions, don't have a referee in it. You've completely changed the whole element of the game, and I think that's what I'm the most upset about is the fact that they've used video evidence to overturn a referee's decision where in the bylaws they do not use video evidence to do that in the, in the speed of play. There's no reason to step back and try and change it on that sense. And also I think they were incredibly inconsistent with the fine that they dished out to them. The, the fine is so loose and so, you know, the, the details are so iffy and so sketchy that there's no real definitive you know, X, Y, and Z, he can't do this, this, and this. There's so many loopholes. It's so inconsistent that it's just almost unnecessary for them to even dish something off. They've wasted their time. They've wasted his time, frankly. Um, and also in terms of Italy, I think, to answer the second bit, I, I definitely agree that Italy definitely – Cesare Maldini, Cesare Prandelli definitely got his tactics wrong in that game, was not planning for it at all, and completely got his tactics wrong. And days later, FIFA ruled Suarez's misconduct by dismissing him from the remainder of the tournament and placing him under suspension for biting Chiellini, ultimately jeopardizing Euro- Uruguay's World Cup chances as they went out in the next round. If the World Cup proves one thing, it's that the only thing to expect is the unexpected and that anything is possible. And it's time for number one. The most shocking moment in the 2014 FIFA World Cup. It was the 8th of July, and as we've seen, host nation Brazil entered the tournament carrying the weight of a nation on its shoulders, looking to restore glory in front of its hometown fans. But despite barely escaping Chile on penalties and bruising its way past Colombia, they were getting ready to face Germany in the semifinals. Number one and two all-time for games played. Number of matches won in the World Cup. Playing without their talisman Neymar or captain Thiago Silva, it was still shaping up to be a clash of the titans of two of the world's greatest football powerhouses. And for the Brazilians, a chance to show national pride and rewrite the history books. Or so they thought. There's a long way and a goal! It's Pozer, the history man! He's Again, 5-0. This is utterly beyond 
Are they going to be organised, Brazil? Because at the moment, it looks as if 11 players are just running around the field with no idea. Well, if this was boxing, the referee would be stopping it to save Brazil from further punishment. And and that was only halftime, as Germany was able to score two more goals to record the biggest semi-final victory in World Cup history. Blows the whistle to put Brazil out of their misery. But the depression will go on for a long time about what we've seen here among the Brazilian public. 7-1, the scarcely believable scoreline in Belo Horizonte. I mean, you just don't see that in modern football. I could see that. A lot of people were saying that, in a sense, it was sort of uncharacteristic because I think when you look at modern football today, most people, you know, you don't see those kind of score lines for, for many reasons. First off, the fitness is a lot different. Back then, fitness was, you know, something that I think was sort of an issue. You know, teams weren't able to stay fit. You know, they weren't able to um, – you know, manage themselves, tactics weren't right. But with today's modern football and the ability that teams have, you, you know, you don't see those kind of score lines. But, I mean, I was completely shocked by the result. Especially the way Germany scored five goals, four or five goals in 20 not even 20 minutes, like 15 minutes. Completely yeah. unbelievable. It's probably the most jaw-dropping soccer game I've ever seen. And the fact that it was a semifinal, you know, that Brazil... Yeah, a lot was riding on the fact that Neymar was in the game and Thiago Silva was out with, with yellow card suspension. But you'd think, yeah, maybe this is the one game where, you know, they all you know, would start to click. They're facing a European giant. They have a chance to punch their ticket to the World Cup finals. And, you know, then they, then eventually you know, they could have faced Argentina. It would have been you know, the greatest game in Brazilian history to even beat Germany. And they just got pounded. You know, it, the fact that the first half, even two goals scored in a few, you know, first goal scored in, in, in the first few minutes is fine. Two goals, all right, something needs to change. In fact, that it's three, four, or five goals in the first half. They lost seven-one. That's like probably the biggest sucker punch ever. No, definitely. I think they just couldn't recover, and I think it really exposed a lot of of the weaknesses that Brazil had. And I, as I said earlier in the show, I, it, it took a long time for them to finally play a team that could really put them under early. They sort of skated, skated by with some of their results. Yeah, they relied. Neymar had a, had a decent World Cup. Not a, not anything, you know, to overshine anything. And Chelsea Silva was certainly a rock in the back defensively, but I think for me, it just never, they never got it right. Dr. Shane, darling, Thank you for all the joy and pain. And it only got worse for Brazil as the team was booed off the field. They eventually lost the third place game to Netherlands, and their coach, Luis Scolari, resigned the day after. But for the Germans, they took this momentous victory to the finals, winning their fourth World Cup by defeating Argentina 1 0. So that's it. Up until now, those are the greatest shocks from the 2014 World Cup. John Gardner, your overall impressions of this most recent World Cup in Brazil? Fantastic. Of every you know, every year I love every four years. This is what I love to do, and can't wait till Russia. Well, it's it's funny that this tournament had so I think feel like it had more flaws than South Africa. South Africa, you know, they scraped together 
and put you know World Cup even if it was in the winter. This one you had the weather problems, the traffic problems, team problems. You had, but like you said, it you know it's everything that a World Cup is. You know it's got the drama, the spectacle, people from distant countries, far off lands. You have stars like James Rodriguez bursting onto the scene. You had the United States going through. You had teams like Costa Rica doing well. You had teams like Brazil, you know, smashing through the woodwork. And it just makes everything, you know, exciting and keeps everyone curious for what 2018 has in store. And another tournament filled with drama, glory, and dreams, but still many more to come. For John Gardner, I'm Mike Gardner, reminding you to check out Fanatic Radio's podcast on iTunes as the show will return this Friday, 4 to 5 Eastern on Blog Talk Radio. But for all of us here at Blog Talk Radio, this has been the 25 most shocking moments of the 2014 World Cup.